Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. In this episode, supported by the MRC Human Genetics Unit in the Institute of Genetics and Cancer at Edinburgh University, we're off on a journey to the world of rare genetic disorders, exploring the diagnostic odyssey that patients and their families go on in search of answers, the research that's happening to understand how variations in our genes cause disease, and new approaches for treating these conditions. Firstly, I want to apologise for the state of my voice. Both Sally and I have been struck down by the lurgy. This is the best I can do after more than a week. So uh, you'll just have to deal with the slightly huskier tones of my voice. But before we start, I have a few things I want to draw your attention to from the Genetic Society. The 1st of March is the deadline for the Society's next round of public engagement grants. They have small grants up to £1,000 and larger grants up to £5,000 available to support online or in-person public engagement activities relevant to genetics. It's a great opportunity to spread the word to the wider world, so get in there quick if you're interested. The 3rd of March is the abstract submission deadline for the Genetic Society's 2023 Spring Conference on Gene Regulatory Networks to be held at St Catherine's College, Oxford on the 12th to the 14th of April. And don't forget that early bird cheap registration also closes on the 6th of March. And finally, tickets are still available for the upcoming For Your Inspiration event at the Royal Institution in London from 6 to 9pm on the 17th of March, in partnership with the Genetic Society. Aimed at young people aged 13 and upwards, as well as adults, there will be a stimulating talk as well as hands-on activities with researchers from around the UK, showing how they're using cutting-edge genetics to learn more about the amazing diversity of life on our planet. Standard tickets are £16 or £10, there's £7 for RI members and patrons, and free for RI young members. You can find links to all these events and activities on the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. The 28th of February is Rare Disease Day a chance to raise awareness and generate change for people living with a rare condition. According to the scientific definition, a rare disease is one that affects fewer than 1 in 2,000 people in the general population. But given that there are many thousands of rare conditions, it actually adds up to a lot. There are around 300 million people around the world living with a rare disease, making it roughly 1 in 17. So... Not so rare at all if you think about it like that. To find out more about rare diseases caused by genetic changes, how they're diagnosed, researched and treated, we've teamed up with the MRC Human Genetics Unit within the Institute of Genetics and Cancer at the University of Edinburgh. They're on a mission to accelerate understanding of how genetic variations and alterations, whether inherited or acquired during life, drive the dysfunctional processes that result in genetic diseases and cancer. An idea commonly heard in the rare disease community is the concept of the diagnostic odyssey. The lengthy and frustrating journey from first noticing that something isn't right and going to the doctor, to actually receiving a diagnosis. It's a process that can take many years, with seemingly endless tests along the way. 
To start our journey into the heart of rare diseases, I spoke to Natalie Frankish, Policy and Engagement Manager for Scotland for Genetic Alliance UK, an organisation supporting people with rare, genetic and undiagnosed conditions, to find out what this diagnostic odyssey is usually like for children and families affected by rare genetic disorders. It's often very difficult. So I think it's probably best to say from the outset that everybody's journey is probably a little bit different. How people end up getting to their diagnosis can be very different depending on the healthcare professionals they encounter and the routes that they go down and the conditions that they have. But we do see quite a lot of common challenges, I think, affecting the community. So delays in the diagnosis is probably the most important thing here to to mention. We hear quite often about how people spend a lot of time trying to get themselves referred to a correct specialist or perhaps for a genetic test or even just to be believed by their GP in the first instance. The statistic I think from our most recent patient experiences report was that there was over a third of people living with a rare condition who will wait more than five years to obtain a diagnosis and that was certainly something that came out most recently in our recent good diagnosis report. We asked some families to get together and take part in some workshops and tell us about their experience of their journey to diagnosis. I can imagine this diagnostic odyssey, as we call it, you know, taking years and years going through endless tests and referrals to get a diagnosis must have quite a big impact on families. How does it affect them in your experience? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for one thing, the uncertainty about what condition may be, what it might mean for the family, what that means in terms of For a child, for example, does that mean that they will be able to go to school, live a long life? All these questions come to mind when you're not sure about a condition and what its prognosis may be. But also down to things like family planning decisions, managing day-to-day care. What does it mean for the family in terms of how they live their lives? Does somebody have to stop working to look after um, a person in their family with a rare condition? All these things have an impact. And the longer it takes to get a diagnosis and to get those answers, even if those answers aren't definite, but are even sending you into a bit of a ballpark, that can take a real toll on a family. And we heard a lot of experiences coming through in our good diagnosis work about the impact on on mental health. So people feeling anxious, people having a lot of symptoms of depression as well, as a result of just having something so big weighing on their mind and not knowing really what was going to happen in the future. So you've mentioned your good diagnosis report. From that and the work that you do, What does a good diagnosis for a rare disease actually look like? What should happen? That's a very good question. And I think there's probably no such thing as a perfect good diagnosis. These things are always very difficult for a family um, and a very sensitive time for people to go through. There's elements that make a diagnosis better. And that's something that we identified in the port. So we had kind of eight key elements. That was that a good diagnosis should be timely and accurate. So getting to a good diagnosis as quick as we possibly can, trying to avoid many misdiagnoses along the way if possible. A good diagnosis is also informed and supported. So that means good quality information right from the get-go. What does a person expect on that journey to diagnosis? What will their appointments look like? How do they expect healthcare professionals to keep in contact with them and share results? And then when a diagnosis does happen, or even in the case where perhaps it's likely that the person will have no diagnosis or remain undiagnosed for some time. It's about the information and support that's available at that time too. So do we signpost to a charity that can support a person for a particular condition? Or do we make sure that they're getting some support for their mental health at that time? We also say in the report that there is needs to be a good deal of collaboration. So working 
with the person or the family going through that journey to diagnosis to understand what their needs are. What do they want from the experience? What kind of information do they need? Is there any particular practical things that they need to help support them and their family? And that means different departments talking to each other, healthcare professionals working together, and where possible, there being some sort of care coordinator in place to help support the person through that journey. So making sure that their appointments are you know, managed as closely together as they can, or if things can be done in the same day, then that's possible too. So that kind of administrative part, I guess, but also making sure that they're accessing the care and support that they need and getting the information that they need as well. The other final two parts of the good diagnosis kind of key elements is about being respected and acknowledged. And so that's once a diagnosis has been made, making sure that the person is getting that the right access to advice or support or services that they need but also recognised by other healthcare professionals involved in their care so having GPs who then understand what that diagnosis is who take a little bit of time to get to know what that condition is so they can help their patients better and also being able to kind of recognise what perhaps a person has gone through in their journey to get to that diagnosis as well just being able to reflect on the needs of the patient. And this all sounds incredibly important, incredibly urgent, and I'm sure for patients and their families, something that's desperately needed, but clearly then isn't really happening all the time right now. So what does need to happen to actually make more diagnoses or maybe all diagnoses like this? So really, there needs to be a little bit of a change in the way healthcare professionals look towards rare conditions. Sometimes what we heard amongst our participants in our project was a tendency amongst healthcare professionals to suspect unusual symptoms in individuals often being the result of an unusual presentation of a common condition rather than thinking, oh, this might be something rare. And in some cases, not listening to the patient when perhaps they've done a little bit of research and identified something that they think they may have that is a rare condition. So we think that there needs to be a greater awareness and access to better information on rare conditions for clinicians, so better training, better access to information for those who are currently delivering healthcare services as well, because with that, clinicians are more likely to be able to identify when it's not the case that this is a usual condition presenting in an unusual way, but in fact, that the individual has a rare condition. I guess you don't want to get into a situation where everyone's got like Dr. Google and they're saying, oh, I think I've got this. I think I think it's that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think though one of the things that was really important that came out of the work that we did. So with our, our workshops, patients or people with lived um, experience of a rare condition were telling us, actually, they were quite happy for their healthcare professional to say, this might be a rare condition. I don't know enough about it. Or when a person has been diagnosed with a rare condition saying, oh, wow, I've never heard of this before. I don't know anything about it. They were quite happy for people to be very honest with them about it. And when we shared that information with healthcare professionals as part of the project, that seemed to surprise them a little bit, that actually they, they should feel confident to say, I don't know about this, or I haven't heard of this condition before. What matters to the people with lived experience with the research in our project is that those healthcare professionals then say, we'll work with you to find the information. We'll look to see what we can find in terms of it being reliable information on the condition itself or accessing and signposting to the appropriate support organisations or most importantly, making referrals to the services where experts exist to help that person. So I think the acceptance is there that, yes, it's very difficult to know about all rare conditions, but it's not difficult to know about rare conditions as a, a kind of collective. And we need to have some better awareness about how healthcare professionals can support their patients when they do present with one. That's Natalie Frankish from Genetic Alliance UK. 
One of the things that can bring this so-called diagnostic odyssey to a conclusion is genetic testing, pointing the finger at an underlying gene fault that has led to the condition. Zosia Mirzibrochka is Professor of Medical Genetics at the University of Aberdeen and is also Clinical Director of Genetics for NHS Grampian, among other roles. So she's the perfect person to ask about how testing for rare genetic diseases has changed over the years and where it's heading in the future. In her time, she's seen genetic testing for rare diseases undergo huge changes. From looking at a picture of whole chromosomes taken down a microscope, known as a karyotype, to figure out if anything looks strange, through to testing single or a handful of genes, and then using what's known as SNP microarrays to look at snapshots across the whole genome. Today, technology has advanced and costs have reduced to a point where genetic testing services can use DNA sequencing techniques to read all the regions of the genome that encode the recipes for making proteins, known as exons, with a technique called exome sequencing. But, as I discovered when we started chatting, that doesn't necessarily give you an answer straight away. The challenge then becomes to tease out the hundreds of thousands of variants in a normal person's genome and work out which single one might be the cause of the problem. So the way we do that, and this is the approach that's been developed with a major contribution from the MRC unit in Edinburgh and Dave Fitzpatrick's team, was you sequence all of the exons of the DNA, and that represents about 2% of the entire genome and compare it with what's the standard sequence for a person and then come up with a file of variants. And then rather than look at all the genes in all the exons, filter that down to the genes that are known to cause the disease you're interested in. So the one we've done most of is intellectual disability. So you would focus down on, and there's now a really well sorted out list of 5,000 or more genes And we look for differences in those genes that are all known to cause learning disability and then select out which variations are strong enough of a difference to be disease causing. And then the clinicians and the scientists have to look at the patient together and decide if that difference actually looks like the patient in front of them. And that's the final test of whether that is the cause or not. Plus, whether that difference has been seen before in other patients with something similar. And the key thing is, instead of just testing the patient in front of us for these complex tests, we try to do tests with three individuals from the family. Typically, it might be a child with their parents. And when you get a new gene change that's present in the child that's not present in either parent, that makes them look like other children with similar features, then you're kind of onto gold. And that's what we're looking for. And those are what we call de novo changes. And they're far more common than we ever thought they were. And it's the power of this technology that's letting us find that. It's fascinating to hear this because, yeah, I I know that there are a lot of variants in the human genome. There's no such thing as a normal genome. And the complexity of trying to look at this data and figure out what is actually not right compared to what is just a regular variation. Where is this technology going now? So going forwards, what we've been testing out is the idea of sequencing a whole genome. 
And in Scotland, we've done that in a couple of ways. We've used a system called short read technology, and we've done a lot of testing with that. We've sequenced one and a half thousand Scottish patients' genomes as part of the 100,000 Genomes Project, and then used the 100,000 Genomes Project interpretive systems to create that variant core file, the differences in the pattern, and filter down to the genes of interest. What I want to emphasise is that these advances that we've made in Scotland have been possible because of unique collaborations between the universities, Edinburgh, of Aberdeen, where I work, of Glasgow, of Dundee, and NHS teams across the country who've worked really hard to take these systems, to put them into routine care and deliver the answers for patients. What I want to do is thank not just all the patients that took part in the study, but all the scientists and all the clinicians who did extra work above and beyond their normal job, often using systems that were just in the process of development to test out these systems and come up with what is now a world-leading service. This sounds absolutely fantastic, but you know, and I know, that this stuff costs money and it takes time. Is it actually worth it to take this approach to analysing these patients? So the first thing to do is pick the patients it makes most difference for. So in our clinic, for example, a common test we do is for familial breast and ovarian cancer. We can do what we call a panel test that looks at relevant half a dozen or so genes for about 200 pounds. If on the other hand, there's 5,000 possibilities like there is with intellectual disability, you're better to do that whole exome test that you can then interpret, but even go back and look at the sequence again in a few months time as more genes have been developed and find more. So what we've done is we've compared the performance of the whole exome system with the whole genome system compared to our standard historic testing. And what we found is that because of the clinical costs of having to keep looking, and because most patients end up getting the TRIO exome test done anyway, it's cheaper and much quicker for the patient to go straight to do the TRIO exome test rather than do two or three tests on the way. But as we go forward, if the cost of genome analysis falls, if the systems for handling the data become less clunky, if they show up less false positives to the lab staff and the clinicians, it may be that one will overtake the other. That's Professor Zosia Medjibrodska from the University of Aberdeen. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. And this episode is supported by the MRC Human Genetics Unit in the Institute of Genetics and Cancer at the University of Edinburgh. You can find out more information about this episode on our website, geneticsunzipped.com. Or come and say hello to us over on Twitter, at Genetics Unzip. And while you're at it, why not leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify? We'd really appreciate it. Thank you. While the technology underpinning genetic testing is progressing fast, with millions of human genomes now sequenced around the world, 
simply having a DNA sequence doesn't always give you an answer as to the underlying cause of a genetic condition. There's no such thing as a perfect genome, and there are many variations between people, some of which may be perfectly harmless, and others that may be the root cause of a genetic disease. But how do you tell the difference? Within the Institute of Genetics and Cancer at the University of Edinburgh, the MRC Human Genetics Unit is tackling this huge issue of how we interpret the genome to better understand and treat disease, with researchers working hand-in-hand with NHS staff, including doctors and the NHS Genetic Testing Services, as well as people affected by genetic disorders. Most alterations found in genes that encode proteins – those are the molecules in cells that do stuff, are classified as variants of unknown significance, meaning that we don't actually know how they affect the protein and, by extension, whether it's involved in genetic disease. In turn, this can contribute to the lengthy diagnostic odyssey faced by patients and their families. One of the researchers trying to unpick this challenge is Dr Joe Marsh, a group leader at the Human Genetics Unit. So, what do we know so far? So, what we're finding is that, well, there's lots of genetic disorders caused by these loss-of-function mutations that knock out normal gene activity. There's also a lot that have a lot more subtle effects at the protein level, so-called gain-of-function or dominant negative variants. And, And in these cases, what happens is the protein is still there, the protein is still doing something, but it's doing something damaging to the cells, damaging to the body potentially toxic effects or it's gaining some new activity. And the the crucial thing about these loss of function variants is that they're a lot more difficult to detect because they have subtler effects at the protein level. They've often been missed by the current methodologies for screening novel variants. So let's dig into what we're starting to understand in the genome. One of the things that you're looking into is this concept of variance of unknown significance. So this, I guess, is where you're looking at the DNA sequence of a gene, of a protein coding gene, and you're going like, well, there's something not right in there, but what is it? Yeah, so variance of uncertain significance is one of the most important problems in in genetics at the moment. You know, with the power of sequencing comes this huge amount of information along with it, which is all these variants that we're identifying. Any person that you sequence, you're going to find a lot of variants. And the fact is that most of them probably do nothing, but some of them can do a lot. So how can we prioritize those small fraction that might have clinically relevant effects from this huge background of genetic variation that you observe in humans? So ideally, what we would have is some kind of atlas that we could look up. When we get a new variant, you look up the gene and look up the variant and see what it's likely to do. And there's actually some exciting work going on in this regards now, both in terms of computational methods. So we can use computer programs to predict the effects of all possible variants, as well as new experimental methodologies, which can, within a single experiment, measure the effects of all possible thousands or tens of thousands of variants within a single gene at once that can give you this readout of the effects of every possible variant, which can be potentially of huge importance when it comes to the diagnosis of genetic disease. So let's dig into these a bit. So how do these kind of advances in computation help you to understand what proteins are doing and then how these variations in the protein coding sequence actually affect what they might be up to? So there's been some 
tremendous advances in computational methods for predicting variant effects over the past couple of decades. And primarily, the most useful thing has been evolutionary information. So looking across evolutionary sequences of different species and seeing how that protein or the gene varies and at positions where it can vary a lot, the variants tend not to have much of an effect in humans. Whereas at positions where it's highly constrained across evolution, the variants are much more likely to have a big effect. So as we've had more and more evolutionary sequence information available, as well as rapid advances in machine learning methodologies, these evolutionary-based sequence variant effect predictors have, have improved substantially, but they're still fundamentally limited in terms of their predictive power. You know, they're quite good at dismissing some variants as completely benign, but they still have a tendency to overcall variants as damaging. So they'll say lots of stuff is damaging when in fact we look at people and see that they can safely have these variants. So now let's turn to the idea of actually being able to test all these possible variations and see which ones are actually bad, for want of a better word. Like, how on earth do you do that? So in the past, experimental testing of variants has been sort of the cornerstone of understanding genotype to phenotype relationships. But it was very slow. You could make one mutant and you could test it in a cell or you could make Oh a- God, <laughs> you're triggering me for my PhD. <laughs> or you could make a mouse or, or now, you know, organized techniques, for example. But it's very low throughput. But in the last few years, there's been this advances of these so-called multiplexed assays of variant effect or often called deep mutational scanning. So these are experiments where you can make a library of thousands or tens of thousands of variants at once and using different types of phenotypic assays combined with deep sequencing technologies, you can measure the effects of all of these variants within a single experiment. And what it's turning out is that for certain genes, these high throughput experimental measurements of variant effects are tremendously predictive of phenotypic effects in humans. So for certain genes, they're much better than any available computational approaches for distinguishing between benign variants as compared to disease-causing variants. Now, the issue at the moment is that these experiments have only been performed on a fairly limited set of proteins within humans. So the challenge is scaling them up to the currently thousands of human disease-associated genes, but you know, likely to be a huge fraction of all human disease genes. And it does give me terrible flashbacks to my PhD when I was trying to knock out like a couple of hundred base pairs next to one gene to try and find out what it did. And it took ages and it didn't work. And now you're doing tens of thousands of these experiments at high throughput, putting all these like variant genes into cells and just going, does it do something bad? Yes, no. If yes, then let's look at this. Automation and computation, it, it has just transformed biology in 20 years, really. Yeah, it's really amazing with the computational power and the, the amount of variant data sets that we have and these emerging deep mutational scanning data sets. It's, I think we're on the cusp of a revolution in terms of genetic diagnosis. But the crucial thing at the moment is how we use this data. So it's still, you know, these experiments are very fresh and there's not really established guidelines about how we can use them in genetic diagnosis. And the same thing with the computational predictions. They're getting much better, but they're still viewed with a lot of skepticism by clinicians, rightfully so, because, you know, we shouldn't be making diagnosis just on the basis of a, a single computational prediction. So the question is, 
What can we best do with this data? How can we best interpret it to make it of the most practical use for clinicians? And, and so there's a lot of work going on in, at the moment in this. And I think we're, again, about to dramatically improve the way that this information can ultimately aid genetic diagnosis. There are lots of genes and there are thousands and thousands of variations and presumably lots of labs and groups trying to look at this. And how is this data being organized and brought together? Uh, well, it's a difficult problem because you have all these groups around the world that are developing these experimental methodologies. But over the past couple of years, a, a, an alliance has been formed. It's, it's a group called the Atlas of Variant Effects Alliances that is trying to coordinate different researchers across the world who are doing these kinds of high throughput assays. And for example, there's a database where people can register the targets that they're working on so that people will know not to focus on that protein, you know, so that they don't overlap. <laughs> this one's mine. <laughs> and they're sharing experimental methodologies and they're sharing computational approaches for analyzing this data and they're working on developing new standards for clinical interpretation of these high throughput experimental data. And so I think this is absolutely essential to to building this atlas of variant effects that will ultimately be so important and so valuable to clinicians when it comes to improving genetic diagnosis. That's Dr. Joe Marsh from the MRC Human Genetics Unit at the Institute of Genetics and Cancer in Edinburgh. Finally, while getting a diagnosis of a rare disease is incredibly important for patients and their families, it opens up more questions, such as whether there is any treatment. As we understand more about the gene alterations that underpin rare diseases and how they affect the underlying biology of the body, this can provide vital leads towards new approaches for therapy. Professor Yannick Crowe and his team at the MRC Human Genetics Unit in the Institute of Genetics and Cancer at the University of Edinburgh are working on understanding rare diseases to better diagnose and treat them, with a particular focus on a rare genetic disorder called acardi Goutier syndrome, or AGS. So this is a disease of children. It affects their brain function. The children can present variably, but the classical presentation is that after a few months of life where the child is apparently well or not doing very badly, the child becomes very unwell and cries inconsolably for several months, stops feeding and loses skills, all of the skills essentially that have been acquired up until that time in the first few months of life. So it's a devastating illness and very difficult for the families. And not infrequently, these children will go to the doctor, the parents will be told, oh, it's colic or teething or this kind of thing. And it takes a while before people realise that there's something very significant going on as the skills are lost. Then usually there's a set of investigations that are done, imaging of the brain, some blood tests, maybe a what's called a lumbar puncture where we examine the fluid that sort of surrounds the brain. And usually the diagnosis is clinched genetically. Unfortunately, at this time, it's a disease where there are no, well, there are, are treatments are sort of starting to come online, but where there's no accepted therapy and no easy therapy and, and where, in fact, this is a situation where early diagnosis is very important because if you make the diagnosis, you know, some period of time after the disease presents already, the children have accrued a significant amount of neurological damage. And of course, it's very difficult to go backwards, so to speak. 
So what's actually going on in this disease when we look under the hood in molecular and biological and genetic terms? So the disease is very interesting from a scientific point of view. And I'll sort of step backwards just for a second and think about COVID. So COVID is just one example of a virus where we have to recognise the virus to mount an immune response against the virus. And and we recognise viruses by recognising their genetic material. And that allows us to then trigger an antiviral response through a a molecule called interferon. So interferon is a kind of antiviral disinfectant and it kills viruses. And evolutionarily speaking, that's not a bad way of trying to fight virus, but it does beg a conundrum, which is that if you're going to sense viral DNA as the trigger for an immune response, how do you differentiate your own nucleic acid from that of a virus? And because nature is clever, we've developed ways of trying to make sure that you don't misrepresent your own DNA as that of an incoming pathogen. And essentially, in Acardiguti syndrome, of which there are at least nine genetic forms, what happens is there are mutations or changes in a piece of DNA, a gene that codes for a protein, which is a chemical, which do stuff. And all of these chemicals that are associated with Acardiguti syndrome are involved in making sure you don't misrepresent yourself as non-self. And so essentially in this disease, you've got these genetic changes, which mean that the protein doesn't function properly. And then these children produce lots and lots of interferon all of the time. So that much interferon signaling over a long period of time is noxious and damages the, the cells and the tissues. So tell me about the approaches that you and your colleagues are taking to try and find and test treatments for these patients. So at the moment, in particular in in Edinburgh, we we have got funding from the Medical Research Council, the MRC, to run a clinical trial in Acardiguti syndrome, which involves children across the UK in four centres, Edinburgh, Manchester, Greater Ormond Street and, and Birmingham. And in that trial, we're doing something that sounds slightly like science fiction, but where we're using drugs that are u- have been used for 30 years or so in millions of people to treat HIV. So we're using drugs that are called RTIs or reverse transcriptase inhibitors. And the reason for using those drugs is those drugs are normally used to inhibit the life cycle of the HIV human immunodeficiency virus, and they actually work very well. So that's a virus that's coming from the outside. But it's very interesting. If you look at the human genome, about 40% of the human genome is said to be composed of ancient virus, which has integrated itself within the human genetic material. And they still want to do their thing, which is basically reproduce themselves. And we, instead of using the RTIs to affect a virus that's coming from the outside, we're using the RTIs on the basis that it can affect the life cycle of viruses that are on the inside. And the hypothesis is that those viruses on the inside are actually driving the interferon response. That is so fascinating. I've long been aware of sort of our internal junk DNA and how much of it is made of these long dead viruses and that they're maybe not as dead as we think they are. No, and there's an awful lot of them. There's an awful lot of them. I mean, it is a tremendous amount of genomic material and it's sort of not surprising perhaps. And in fact, people are, you know, are implicating these retroviruses in things like aging and other other autoimmune inflammatory disorders. So where are you at with this trial so far? 
So the trial's launched and been recruiting patients since late summer last year, and so it'll be running into the summer of 2024. And currently we've recruited three patients in Edinburgh, one patient in Great Ormond Street, and the other centres are just about to open. So we hope to recruit up to 24 patients. And I think it's very important to recognise and, and thank and be grateful to the families that become involved because it's very hard to have a child with, you know, problems that, you know, not just from an emotional point of view, but from a very practical point of view, getting to places, getting in and getting out of the house, difficulties with staying over, these kinds of things. So it's an enormous undertaking and it's always remarkable and humbling how the families do want to get involved. So, in fact, in terms of numbers... There aren't that many patients in the UK, but there's more than 24. And, and I think that we'll have no problems recruiting as long as we have enough time for the trial to run. That's Professor Yannick Crow. And thanks to my other guests, Natalie Frankish, Professor Zosia Mijbrodska and Dr Joe Marsh. And also to Dee Davison and the team at the MRC Human Genetics Unit for supporting this episode. That's all for now. We'll be back next time, hopefully with our voices intact, taking a look at the ins and outs of cutting and pasting DNA, exploring the ethics of gene editing and taking a trip to a new exhibition exploring this very subject at the Francis Crick Institute in London. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter at Genetics Unzip and please do take a moment to leave us a rating in the Spotify app or review us on Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference and it helps more people discover the show. This episode of Genetics Unzipped was written and presented very huskily by me, Katani. It's a first Create the Media production for the Genetic Society, one of the oldest learned societies dedicated to promoting research, training, teaching and public engagement in all areas of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, our logo is designed by James Mayle, audio production is by Emma Werner and our producer is Sally LePage. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.